0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. It's another day in the month of November, which means there are free books about. Right now, you can get Douglas Wilson's romance novel, The Man in the Dark, free on Amazon Kindle and 50% off the paperback. Hit the link in the show notes and it will take you right to the goods. Stay tuned to Doug's blog at Blog and Mayblog and the Canon Press social media to stay up to date with all the great deals going on for the rest of the month. Cheers! Yes, God. God never welcome to the podcast episode 119 this is podcast i'm doug wilson thanks for joining us uh, we are living in a time where um the Racial Federal Reserve, or whoever is in charge of these things, is uh, infusing into the currency of our public discourse an awful lot of um, white supremacy notes. In other words, uh, white supremacy is undergoing a period of hyperinflation. Uh, hyperinflation. What do I mean? Recently, we released a series, a, a, a season of A television show that I'm, where I'm I'm hosting and interviewing people, uh, called Man Rampant, and we are uh, discussing various issues um, connected to masculinity. And the show has been uh, well received and widely watched, and a lot of people respond to it, for which we're most grateful. But the first episode was a conversation I had. I was interviewing uh, Joe Rigby, who is with. uh, Bethlehem in Minneapolis, but not Bethlehem Church, the the college and seminary, and oh, I should I should shoehorn in, um, in here the fact that someone is willing to be interviewed um, by me or is willing to have a conversation with me or someone who believes that I'm, uh, uh, that I don't have cooties. The fact that someone appears on Man Rampant does not, um, does not mean that they. Embrace everything that I've ever taught or said or whatever. It's just it just means that they're uh, willing to talk to me and talk to me about the topic assigned. In this case, uh, Joe and I were talking about the difference between empathy and sympathy. We talked about that for an hour, maybe a little more, and it was all about um, uh, sentimentalism and feelings and the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is where you have compassion for someone you've, you you. You feel with them, but you don't give yourself wholly unto them. Empathy is where you go headlong uh, into the sensation, identifying with them uh, completely and so forth. So, we had this conversation. So, you could agree with parts of it, disagree with parts of it. You could agree with all of it. You could disagree with all of it. But we we went from stem to stern. We went from the beginning of the show to the end of the show without talking about... Uh, race we weren't we weren't talking about white black issues at all we were talking about sympathy and empathy and um and over this last weekend there was a gentleman on twitter twitter who went on the warpath, accusing us of uh engaging in white supremacy and th- this uh you know of course we've we've gotten to the point where uh, in our in in the decay of our culture, where nothing should surprise any of us anymore, but still this this surprised me how can you be talking about something that's that's where you don't um, <laughs> that's not what you're talking about that's not what you're getting into that's not what you're saying and have someone be able to come back and say that's racist or that's white supremacy it's just sort of um It it seems to me that what's going to happen is when you get to the point where everyone's a racist and everyone's a white supremacist and everything is a microaggression and everything is a macroaggression, you're not very far from the from the place of saying nothing is an aggression at all. Um, This is what inflation does when you pump money into the current when you pump uh, uh, new money into the uh, financial system, you are devaluing the currency. So many people think that inflation is prices going up, but that's, the, that's an optical illusion. Uh, the prices, prices are not going up. The value of the currency is going down. So if it used to cost a dollar to buy a loaf of bread, and now it costs two dollars to buy a loaf of bread, there are two possibilities. One is there's a scarcity of bread, and the the and the value of a loaf of bread has gone up, or somebody's dumping money into the currency, uh, into the into the financial system, and it now uh, a dollar is now worth what fifty cents used to do uh, a while ago. Well, it used to be that to be a racist, to be called a racist, to be identified as a white supremacist, that was it really meant something. And it was a bad thing to be, you know, for, for basically for um, reasonable Christians, good hearted Christians, um, it, you know, being a white supremacist meant something like you were a skinhead and you uh, laced up your boots and you went on the Aryan Nations March or something like that. That's what a white supremacist was. And uh, everybody was prepared to denounce it. It was not a good thing, not a good thing at all. But if you find yourself, this is what happened to the Tea Party movement. When, they, you know, the, tea, when the Tea Party movement began, they were just interested in basic budgetary math. All right? they, they, want, they were maintaining something like, you can't spend what you don't have. You can't spend what you don't have. And then that was tagged as racist. Well, if anybody can be convicted of white supremacy or racism, simply because they're breathing and talking, then what, what's happening is not uh, that racism has broken out in new and virulent forms. Rather, there are people like this gentleman on Twitter who are resolved to make the charge of racism virtually meaningless. To ma- They're resolved to make the charge of white supremacy virtually meaningless. So let's not do that, shall we? That's my, that's That's my observation. So, continuing with um, podcast episode one nineteen, we come to hamartiology, our section where we're studying the sins, uh, the sins that are identified as sins in the New Testament. And you recall that last time I said that we're we're really going through the lexicon left to right, and we are still in the alphas. We're still in the first um, first part of the lexicon. But some of these words have a rough breathing mark, and so they're pronounced with an H. Same thing here. So, there are times when the New Testament refers to a sin by way of negation. One example is the use of harpag, harpagmos in Philippians 2.6, Harpagmas, and that's our word. It, with the, without the rough breathing mark, mark it would be arpagmas. Uh So harpagmos, um, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So there's our word, robbery. In other words, the Lord Jesus did not grasp after his position as God's equal. He did not surrender to the temptation of usurpation. And in this case, various translations render it differently. Um, So, uh, in neither case is Jesus sinning, but it's what we're being made to think varies. Some translate this as Christ not believing it to be robbery to be God's equal or to be considered as God's equal that's the KJV and the NKJV, while others translate it as Christ not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, that's the ESV and the NASB. In the former, it's not considered a fraud if Jesus thought himself to be God's equal. In the latter, Jesus did not grab at something that was rightfully his. So, um, it's not robbery if I think myself, God's equal because I am. It, that would be what Jesus was thinking there or it uh Jesus avoided the sin of clutching at or grasping at the equality that was inherently his now on this I'm I'm with the uh, ESV and the NASB I think that that's what it's talking about but in either case um Jesus uh, is not guilty of um the harpagmos that uh that the the kind of thing that that word refers to in either case, we have the sin illustrated by Christ's refusal to have anything to do with it. He did not fraudulently, uh, fraudulently indulge in the high conceit of believing himself to be equal with God, and it was not high conceit because it was true. Taken the other way, he did not stand on his prerogatives. He did not insist on things that were rightfully his. He did not grab after them. He did not clutch for them. Let's go. So, continuing on with podcast episode 119, we come now to our book review uh, section. And I'd like to review um, a book by Scott Manich. I'm not sure how to uh, pronounce his last name. It's M-A-N-E-T-S-C-H, Scott Manich. And the book is Calvin's Company of Pastors. Calvin's Company of Pastors. And what this is, is a social history Of the ministerial community in Geneva, from a midpoint in Calvin's ministry there, through the following century or so. So it's uh, how the how the Company of Pastors was formed, um, what uh, what Calvin's reforms in Geneva actually uh, did, how uh, Theodore Beza continued with Calvin's legacy after after the fact. Um, and uh how they staffed the city churches, and then Geneva was responsible for a number of the uh, country parishes in the surrounding uh in the surrounding area, how they filled the pulpits there, how they assigned men to minister in those uh in those uh, country churches as well so this it, it, this is a fascinating uh social history because you have a a particular town you know a, a mid-sized town uh geneva uh the reformers started the academy there and uh they had a massive uh, publishing industry so a number of the pastors were authors writers and, and scholars there were uh, but but th- this is the this is the thing that many people uh, miss um, one of the things, that, there were many, many excommunications during um, the establishment of the Reformation in Geneva. But we sometimes think that this was sort of a heavy handed um, approach because we are so used to our voluntarist system. So modern Christians move to a new city, they're church going folks, so they engage in what's uh, quaintly called church shopping they they check out various churches. They they try one one Sunday, and they try another one another Sunday, and they compare notes, and they think about the sermon, and about the music, and how close it is to their home, and whatnot, and they decide on a church. Let's say they go start going to that church, and they take the new members class, and then they join that church. After they've joined that church, let's say it's five years later, and someone in that family Uh, Needs to be disciplined. Uh, Let's say the wife leaves her husband, or the husband leaves his wife, or one of the kids becomes rebellious. Um, And let's say it's a faithful church, meaning that it's a church that still practices church discipline. And so they practice church discipline, but everybody, even though some people will squawk and fight and say it was tyrannical in some way, everybody knows that these people came to this church. No one. No one had a gun to their head. No one forced them to join. They were able to ask all the questions they wanted to ask about the church, um, beforehand. And so we have we have this voluntarist uh, operating system running all the time in the background of our minds when we when we think about church discipline. But what happened in Geneva was a little bit different. Uh, Different cities would decide. Whether to follow the Reformation or not, as a city, so it would be like a political. Uh, sometimes it'd be almost like a political campaign, where they would have a public disputation, and the Roman Catholics uh, would have representatives there, and the and the reform would have representatives there, and they'd have a, they'd have a public debate, public disputation, and then after the dispute, the city would decide which way they're going to go. And the whole city would go that direction now, some people who know uh, uh, know calvin 's story know th- th- you know that uh, Calvin had to flee from France uh, because of persecution, and he was looking for a, a quiet little hole in the wall with a library where he could study and be a scholar and William Farrell, another um, a, a reformer who'd been laboring in Geneva, uh, heard that calvin. Had stopped in Geneva for the night on his way wherever he was going. And Farrell hot footed it over there to where Calvin was staying and just, uh, you know, scared Calvin to death. He he called down thunder, lightning, and blue ruin on Calvin if Calvin didn't stay and help with the Reformation in Geneva. So Calvin stayed and he began the labors there. And then uh, Calvin was exiled. Uh, the although the although the city had decided to to become reformed, they didn't want to go along with all of Calvin's projects, so they kicked him. They kicked him out. So Calvin went to Strasbourg, where he learned a great deal from Martin, uh, Butzer, and picked up some pointers. And then later, uh, Geneva gotten in, into kind of a bad jam, and they asked Calvin to come back. Calvin uh, did come back, and and in sort of a pointed way, he resumed preaching at the verse where he had left off when he, was, when he was kicked out of Geneva. Now, when Calvin comes back, one of the things that happens is there was a city council election in 1555, and that city council election was momentous because it consolidated the, uh, the hold that Calvin and his allies had in the city of Geneva, so it consolidated the Reformation, and it More particularly, it consolidated Calvin's form of uh, the Reformation in Geneva. Now, here's this is how it relates to church discipline. I, I described the voluntarist system to you, where someone joins the church, and then of course, well, you, you joined a church that practices church discipline. You can't be astonished if they practice it on you when you do the things that they discipline for. But what happened here in Geneva is the city council, in effect, the city council turned uh, the practice of church discipline over to Calvin and the ministers together with it. So, Calvin and his cohort, his company of pastors, were responsible for church discipline, and were responsible for church discipline for everybody who lived in town. So it's, it wasn't a case of the people who came to St. Pierre's uh, Saint Peter's there in Geneva and joined the church and said, yes, I'll submit to your teaching, and then later on when they veer off the straight and narrow, they are disciplined. No, what happened was uh, Calvin was responsible for everybody in town. And so if a man was beating his wife, uh, he'd be disciplined for it. If a man was caught in fornication, he'd be disciplined for it. If a man was uh, uh, blaspheming, he'd he'd be disciplined for it. But you you have to picture um an picture a north an average North American pastor taking the call at a particular church, and then shortly after he arrives in that town, he gets the news. Guess what? The city council has just made you. The uh, ecclesiastical authority over the spiritual lives of everyone who lives in town—that was the situation that Calvin was confronting, and it makes for some pretty entertaining reading, I can tell you. So, Calvin's Company of Pastors by Manich, and uh, if you're a pastor, particularly, there are a number of things here that will uh, provide you with uh, what shall we say. Uh, uh, pointers a good example some a handful of things where you say oh man i'm glad we don't do that anymore but um but but there's much much here that is edifying it's a good book